You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Massimo, good to see you again. It's a pleasure as usual. So we've moved from the Acropolis to um, to the Coliseum. Is, to the Coliseum. Should we take, right. is there something we should take from these... Uh, is there a theme to the background selections? Uh, they're all my pictures. They're these are all pictures that I take. Oh, those are your own pictures. Yes. Oh, they're wonderful. The light, man, Not beautifully done. Yeah, beautifully it was, done. It was great. <laughs> um, just because I know everybody probably cares. Just very thirty second. You doing okay there in Manhattan? Yes, we're we're doing fine with my wife. We're you know we keep working. We keep doing a lot of these online things. I did a online event yesterday on Zoom about the. Uh, the, whether we should believe in the Stoic God or uh, or not, and it's amazing because there like there were seventy people showing up live, and then there's now about a thousand people that have watched the video. So it's like it's fun. Yeah, Unfortunately, you know, I wish it were under different circumstances, but yeah, you know, it's, it's yeah, good. it's good. I, one of the things I'm going to ask you to do when we're done is I'm going to. Could you send me links to? all this new online sort of activity you're engaged in because there are people in the audience who may want to get in on that. Everybody's jonesing for stuff to sort of keep their attention and, and it would also be a good promotion. So I'll, I'll put stuff in the links. Um, Believe it or not, it's, it's amazing. You're doing live. Yeah, it's, but it's amazing because not only I'm doing my own thing. So I'm doing, I'm using zoom uh, now to do live chats with people who are interested. Uh, most of them so far has been on stoicism. Um, and uh, but now I'm in May. I'm going to start an online uh, book club, and the first book we're going to read is Beisha's, uh Consolation of Philosophy. And, oh, right. Uh, I mean, figures that you know, given this. I mean, everybody's reading uh, Camus' The Plague, but so that's that's done. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's probably fifteen hundred book clubs about that already. <laughs> exactly. So it's like you know, no, let's go back a little further for the industry. Yeah. So it's 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 interesting to do these things. It's obviously there is a. People are eager to participate. Um, but the other thing is I'm getting a lot of uh, requests for interviews. I mean, I've, uh, you know, like this week, it's three or four already scheduled. And I have several coming up for next week uh, as well. And yeah. so at some point, I'm trying to sort of stay sane because, you know, I also have to actually teach and uh, yeah. write my own stuff. And not to mention, I'm behind with my readings in an in unbelievable manner. So, You've got so a stack like, piling up. <laughs> well, you won't see the stock because it's all on my electronic device. But, oh, have you gone over to electronic books now? Yeah, it's it's been years, actually. I, I have very few books in my, in my house. I just, it's the, no, it's the aesthetics of the actual, I actually, I like the layout, the, the the look of the fonts, the, I don't know, something about that, all that really matters, you'd think it would be trivial, right? <laughs> I, um, no, it's not. It's not my experience. No, it does. Um, that is one reason why I tried a bunch, you know, going electronic for me has been a, a very good move for a number of reasons. First of all, because space. I live in a smaller, yeah, a small apartment in New York, so I don't need a lot of space taken up by books. Also because the portability, you know, I travel, travel. I used to travel a lot. <laughs> uh, so, and also I spent a lot of time, I used to spend a lot of time in the subway to go to city college. So those are all, that's all time that I used to, to, to read. And then I have my notes everywhere, but yeah. you're right about the aesthetic experience because uh, even so, so I started out initially, I said, okay, well, I'm going to read on my iPad or on my iPhone or something like that. And no, it's not going to work because it's distracting. First of all, it's a lot of glare from the screen. Constantly, I already look at the screen, you know, several hours, many hours a day. 
And also it's like, it gets distracting because you get, you know, of course you're going to check email and text messages and, you know, stuff like that. So that's why I eventually moved to an electronic, dedicated electronic uh, book reader. Which has that kind of parchment look of it. So it's not so, it looks more right. like a natural It's a page. different technology. Yeah. That's right. The, the e-ink technology is different. So it's, it doesn't have that kind of glare that comes at you. You can read it in the sunlight. Um, you can still do all the annotations, all that stuff. And it doesn't have email or browser. Oh, that's great. So you can't, or, or text you can't check things and yeah. Nope. Nope. <laughs> it's just reading. <laughs> All right. Well, we're here to discuss. So, um, I actually, this, when I reached out to you, um, so I had an ongoing argument with some other philosophers about value and objectivity and real realism and all of that. Um, and, um, I published a short essay, um, in which I argue that um, whether or not values are objective or not actually doesn't matter. Um, and um, you and I have in the past, when we talked about ethics, which we've done quite a bit, kind of come to sort of an agreement that we're anti-realists about, about morality, but we're not sort of, you know, radical subjectivists about it. And so we sort of, right. you, you have on multiple occasions, and I'm going to ask you to do it again, sketched out sort of in a, a position that's, uh, that takes values as being objective, um, but not real in the philosophical sense. Um, we have yes. to be careful there because in normal discourse, I think the word real often just means objective. Um, right. Um, but it has a very specific sense of philosophy. So I thought I would talk to you, first of all, um, to ask you again, to talk again about the distinction between objectivity and realism, because I'm starting to wonder whether maybe it's a bit slippery. Um, and the, and then I want to talk about, um, whether, whether, you, what you think of the argument that I made, because I, I'm not, it's not clear to me on a, on a traditional eudaimonist view, um, Values have to be at least objective, and, and and obviously in an Aristotelian framework they're going to be real also in the sense because the because of the metaphysics, not real yeah. in the mind independent sense, but real in the sort of the more the more Greek way of thinking about reality. Um, but I I actually wasn't sure whether your Stoicism depends upon. Um, obviously, it doesn't depend on realism in the in the right. in the modern sense because you reject that. But does it does it require? that values be objective. So I thought I would ask you about it. Um, 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 yeah. Uh, no, it does. Uh, in fact, I think I would argue that it does for all eudaimonic uh, schools. Um, one way to look at the, at the difference between the eudaimonic schools, like Stoicism, Epicureanism, uh, Aristotelianism included, actually, uh, and so on and so forth, is that they all subscribe to the same basic na- uh, notion which some schools articulate explicitly and in others is implicit. And that's the, the, the stoic motto uh, of we should live according to nature. Actually, the Epicureans also use the same exact motto. And I think it's intrinsic, it's implied in, in, in all of the other schools. Living according to nature means that we should be conducting ourselves, you know, sort of the ethics is about, uh, is about how to live your life. So we should live by taking seriously the nature of not only the universe at large, but of human beings in particular. So, so the question is, if you ask yourself, well, what kind of life should I live? Then that question, the answer to that question cannot be independent of considerations about well, what kind of being are you? If you, if you are uh, a human being with certain characteristics, biological, social, et cetera, et cetera, then it turns out that there's going to be certain things that are good for you and other things that are not good for you. Um, and if you are a completely different kind of, of, of being, if you're a non-social being, let's say, 
uh, or if you're a Martian or Alpha Centaurian or whatever it is, then, then it may very well be that different things apply. And so in that sense, I consider the, these are all naturalistic schools because they do get their cues from nature. However, of course, they're not going to commit the appeal to nature fallacy, right? They're not going to tell you whatever is, is good, you know, is natural, it's natural is good. Um, they're going to look at the best aspects or the most relevant aspects of human nature. For instance, let me give you a specific example. The major contrast between the Epicureans and the Stoics was this. According to the Stoics, the major thing that you get out of, of observing human nature is that we are pro-social animals. So that we are naturally virtuous, so to speak, if you understand virtue as just being pro-social. Uh, according to the Epicureans, on the other hand, the basic thing you get out of observing human beings uh, as, quite, as, as biological organisms is that we don't want pain, that we, that we seek pleasure and we avoid pain. So, the diff- so both schools said that we should live according to nature. And for the Stoics, that meant, well, you should use your reason, reasonability, which is the most uh, exalted faculty of human beings in order to improve so- social living. But for the Epicureans, you should, uh, what we should try to do is to stay away from, from pain and, uh, and seek pleasure. So in both, so you can see that they differ, of course, from the, in their interpretation of what really matters, but they're both tied to some understanding of the human animal. In fact, both of them made the same exact argument. They call it the cradle argument. The cradle argument is, well, look at what, um, Inf- human infants are doing. And for the Epicureans, human infants, the first thing that they do is to seek pleasure and avoid pain. And that's why they say, well, you know, the adults do essentially the same thing, only in a more, you know, sophisticated yeah, the, the, rational the, the, way. Listen, the, 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 the modern utilitarians take straight from that. I mean, Bentham, if you yeah. read Bentham, Right. It's in the first paragraph. He makes a, a, a sort of a naturalistic argument from from sort of pleasure and pains, uh, pleasure seeking, pain avoidance as a fundamental human imperative. Right. Correct. And um, in fact, yeah. Epicurus it no. influenced uh, Mill, John Stuart right. Mill for That's sure. That's right. That's right. Now yeah. the other side, the yeah. Stoic, they look also at human infants and they say, no, actually, the first thing that human infants do is to first look after themselves to, for their own well-being, and then immediately at the well-being of people in their surroundings because they immediately realize that their own well-being relies on the well-being of their, of, of their caretakers and so on and so forth. And so human infants actually do things that are painful so long as they're good for them. Yeah. For instance, try to learn how to walk or something like that. It's not a pleasure. It's not pleasurable, but it is necessary, and so you do it. Um, and sure enough, the, the Stoics influence the Kant. So, right, yeah. so because it, it comes down to virtue and, you know, duty and stuff like that. Yeah. So that's what I mean. Now, are these objective or real? Well, hmm. Um, yeah, because what I was going to ask is that, was that, look, I mean, Hume believes that Hume's entire ethics is centered around the idea of living in accordance with nature, right? That's right. Um, 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 the whole point, the whole idea of 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 the 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 focus on the sentiments is to focus on human nature, um um, but for Hume, values are famously subjective, and so, a what I'm wondering is, is there something intrinsic to the Greek way of thinking about nature such that you couldn't it couldn't come out subjective in the way that Hume values couldn't come out subjective in the way Hume thinks they right. are, um um. And if and if and if and if so, then, and if not, I'm sorry. Then 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 why why do we need to worry about whether? Um, yeah. 
the values can be conceived of. Because one of the things I was going to say about what you said about, you know, you know, pro-social, um, you could in a sense argue that, well, yeah, it's true that human beings have the capacity to be both social and antisocial. Um, yeah. and the fact that we prefer people to be social, shows that values ultimately are subjective, right? Because in a sense, what, why do we focus on social, being pro-social as our aim? Well, because yeah. that's the way we prefer, right? Yeah. Um, so, so what is your right. thought about all of that and, and the, the point about Hume? And- so, so Hume, of course, was aware. In fact, he wrote, an, uh, he wrote essays on both Stoicism and yeah. Epicureanism yeah, and right. Cynicism, yeah. in fact. Yeah. And it was actually, even though, he, of course, he, he leaned toward, more towards skepticism, uh, than the ancient skepticism, then, uh, uh, which was another one of these eudaimonistic schools that was a rival to Stoicism. He also has very good things to say about Stoicism. And so, so I don't actually see Hume's position in a completely different category. It's just that he's focusing on, on different aspects of human nature. He thinks that, you know, sentiments and feelings are more foundational than reason, um, it's his famous phrase or mm. phrase of, right, you know, reason is and ought to be the, the slave of the passions. He's focusing on a different aspect of nature. It's not necessarily, he's not necessarily denying the aspect of nature that the right. Stoics embrace. He's just thinking that that's the wrong place to look. Correct. Because of the relationship of reason to sentiment in action. In his view. Right. In his view. That's right. Okay. So, so how about I the don't... other point regarding, um, 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 preference that idea that the whole idea of pro-social that doesn't just come out of nature that's because we prefer that aspect of our nature to well the stoics would say that we prefer it because it is natural because because we are in fact naturally pro-social animals we are highly highly social animals that is our survival and and uh, and our ability to thrive actually depends on being embedded in a society even the most you know anti-social people you know they actually are highly interdependent from a social milieu. They just don't recognize it. They just don't don't take that part seriously. That's what I meant when I said, you know, if if uh, human beings were actually a biological non-social, biologically non-social animal, then the whole thing would be completely different. The Stoics wouldn't be able to make a case for pro-sociality. Let's say, for instance, let's make a let's do a thought experiment. Imagine that we one of these days we we encounter a, a species of Martians, and the Martians are highly intelligent, they're capable of reason, right, in the way in which we are, but they're entirely non-social animals. They only meet for mating, and that's it, which is, which is actually a fairly normal situation. Aren't orangutans right? orangutan sort of like yeah, that? Yeah, a lot, that's right. A lot of, in fact, even chimpanzees to some extent mostly do that. So a lot of, even a lot of primates don't, are not social. Yeah, yeah. We are some of, one of the social primates, but uh, and there are others, like the the... Uh, pygmy chimpanzees, the bonobos, are highly yeah. social, right? Yeah. But not every uh, species of primate is social, in, in fact. So imagine our, you know, consider our imaginary Martian. And so we, we're going to meet, and uh, they're going to hear about stoicism, and they're going to say, oh, yeah, well, they got it half right. Reason is definitely a value that, that we hold dear because that, that is one of our, you know, most important characteristics. But sociality, this thing about the virtues, no, that's not the case because, because we don't have, we don't, we don't act that way. We're not, our, our species is not organized that way. So what I'm saying is that the Stoics would argue that being pro-social is actually preferred in a rational way. It's preferred in a, in a, both in a rational way and in a natural way. Meaning, um, 
most of us tend to to think that you know interacting with other people is is a good thing and interacting well with other people is a good thing both because we have pro social instincts you know we evolved they obviously they didn't know anything about evolution but we evolved pro social instincts uh so it's in, it's in, in our dna and because reason uh upon reflection lets lets you to the discovery that you know if i don't actually interact nicely with other people uh i my life isn't going to be particularly uh, uh, you know, pleasant. So it is both, both the natural, a natural instinct and in, in a sort of a reason, a result of, of, of rational thinking, according to the Stoics that brings us here. All right. So, so that means ask, that, yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah. Finish, finish. No, so that I want to ask you about this. Me, so that sounds to me, uh, in naturalist, it's a very naturalistic approach to ethics. Um, it doesn't tell you, it doesn't give you a lot of specifics because of course, um, if you say, well, you should, your life should be conducted by applying reason to improve social living. That doesn't give you a lot of specifics because there is, and shouldn't, because there is a lot of ways to cash that out, right? I mean, the Stoics, for instance, disagreed about the best form of government among themselves, right? And why is that? Well, because presumably, uh, when it comes to the specific question of, well, what kind of government should we adopt? Uh, reason and pro-sociality are going to come up uh, are going to lead to, to a landscape of possibilities, not just one answer. Yeah, and it's, it's, right? so it's, it's going to be underdetermined relative. It's going to be underdetermined relative exactly. to all sorts of um, contingent factors and elements of the the particularities of the various. Right. Um, um, and that is actually one of the things that I like about stoicism, because unlike other more modern philosophy, philosophies, you know, moral philosophies, it doesn't give you a lot of specific. It only gives you the parameters, the, the sort of the yeah. framework, yeah. and then you're going to work the specifics right. depending on what, where you are and, and what's going on. In that sense, it's very much like our, in that sense, they are not very different from Aristotle at all. No, um, that's right. Um, all right. Let, let me, you know, this is kind of tricky. Um, let me just, <laughs> let, let me just push a little bit, um, on this notion of the nat, of natural. Um, um, so, I guess what I was thinking before was that, look, we have a, we have a perfectly natural capacity to be antisocial, right? Um, as a matter of fact, it kind of, you kind of have to train people not to be antisocial, right? I mean, I mean, you could mm-hmm. make an argument that the mm-hmm. sort of the default inclination <laughs> is to be antisocial, at least sometimes, right? Um, 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 otherwise it wouldn't be such a labor. Um, to raise people properly, right? I mean, I mean, it really, and, and it really makes a difference whether you raise people properly. I mean, you know, my, my wife now has been teaching high school for 15 years and I, you know, and you and I teach college and you really can see, right? The yeah. effect of developmental sort of, you know, um, yeah. um, 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 rearing and so, and so I guess one of the things I would ask you is, um, and, and I started seeing the glimmer of an answer and tell me if you think that this is how this, how the, how you were thinking of this, that, Look, we have a nat- you could say we have a, as much of a natural inclination to be antisocial as to be pro-social. The way that the ancient Greeks, like Greeks, like the Stoics, got sort of sort of made the pro-social sort of the objectively correct version um, is because of their teleological metaphysics, right? Mm. In the modern era, it's going to be the selective advantage of being pro-social that's going to do that work. Right. That's sort of what you is that how you see it? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's pretty close. Now, however, I want to stress a couple of things. Yeah. So, first of all, the Stoics would actually agree with your reasoning that you made a minute ago, um, that, that, uh, about the, the tendencies to be pro-social or anti-social, but that would actually turn it right away around. They would say, actually, if you observe human behavior from infancy, 
we are naturally pro-social, and then it's our upbringing that is screw up, screws up. So that's more like and, Rousseau. That's more like Rousseau. Yeah, that's right. It's kind of yeah. like a Rousseau approach. It's our bringing that screws up, particularly our parents and our peers, um, that screws up, and then and then sort of foster the more uh, um, you know antisocial. Uh, tendencies that we have. What do you? What do you this, what's your view on that specifically? Because I tend to be more Hobbesian um, than Rousseauian. Do you? Do you agree with that? No, I, I, I agree. I mean, I do think that we have very strong pro-social instincts, just like the bonobos. That doesn't mean that we cannot and do not, in fact, in, engage in you know uh, selfish behaviors or try to take advantage of people, whatever it is. Of course, yes, that's that's true. But I think that fundamentally we are. Pro-social, not pro-social in the sense of, let's say, social insects, right? Social insects are entirely pro-social, yeah, yeah. right? There is no, but that's that's genetically so. That's, right, because that's, they don't, they don't act on the basis of judgments. They, they, Correct. Their actions Correct. are completely determined. They're completely determined genetically, yeah. and their genes are such that there is no such a thing as an individual separate from the, from the, uh, the, the interest of the queen or the interest of the colony, right? We are not like that, obviously. Um, we are, as you say, a mix of things. But the fundamental instinct uh, tends to be prosocial for the simple reason that, again, I don't think many human beings in the past who were radically antisocial actually survived. That's a, that's the matter of selective advantage. Yeah. yeah. So it winds up being objective in the sense that the prosocial is selectively advantageous, right. um, and so one, and and that's not a matter of of subjective opinion right i mean that's sort of you right. know um um and so and so that provides a kind of an objective objective basis for these values but importantly it is contingently objective meaning that human evolution could have gone in a completely different way and we, we could have, find we could have evolved more along the lines of the of the orangutans exactly solitary exactly, exactly. that's just my recurrency how far back does that split happen because we're obviously in the tr- in the part that has the social more the social primates on it. Where yeah. is the split that the solitary, like the orangutans? So I think it's back the, between six and eight million years ago. Um, because the last split that we have with other social primates, with the with the bonobos, uh, goes back to about four million years. So I think that the split with the orangutans is down probably a little further, or between eight and ten million years. But I would have to get checked. Oh, it's almost two. double. Double. Yeah, yeah, almost double. Yeah. Okay. Because the gorillas also tend to be, it's a social species and we're also related to gorillas. So the closest relatives to us are chimpanzees and the bonobos. Those are the closest. Then there's the gorillas and then there is the orangutans. Very interesting. Um, okay. So one more thing before we talk about the sort of the, the provocation that I offered. Um, Objective versus real, okay? So real traditionally in philosophy means something like mind independent or independent of any frame of reference, uh, conceptual scheme. You know, objective has this sort of um, out there, independent of us and our constructions um, uh, connotation. Um, That's that's the notion of the real um, in philosophy. Um, what is your conception of the, I know we've done this before, but it's been a long time and there's no, I think this repetition about this sort of thing is good. Um, <laughs> what is your conception of the objective in contrast with that? And then What's maybe the reaffirm yeah. the sense in which values in the sense you're talking about are objective, given right. the story we've just told. So here's one way to make a, the, the distinction. Think about something that is, in my mind at least, 
clearly objective, but not real. And I'll give you two examples. One, actually, you brought up recently, chess playing. Yeah. Right? So the rules of chess are objective, meaning that once, you know, once they lay down and they're written somewhere, that's it. If you want to play chess in a, an international tournament or with your friend, those are the rules. There are, yeah. It is objectively the case that the king can move only one square and the queen can move as many squares as she wants. That's an objective fact. However, it's also obviously not real unless you're a radical Platonist, because I don't believe that the, the game of chess is mind independent. You know, it was, it's a specific game invented by human minds and in fact modified over, over history. An even clearer example, I think, is etiquette. So if you go to dinner in a particular, in a particular society and, and even arguably in a particular, you know, class within a, that particular society, there are certain things that you're expected to do at dinner or not to do. Like, I don't know, not farting, for instance, yeah. or something like that, right? Those are objective rules, meaning that they are very clear to anybody who is a member of that society. It is objectively the case that, no, you don't go at dinner, people, and start farting. But it's obviously not mind in the band. This is entirely human construction. There, are, there may very well be societies where actually farting is a, is a appreciation or Belching, it's actually a better now, Belching, example. that's actually real. I mean, my Re- father, belching is real. My father right. did a lot of business in China. Right. And it right. was quite a hill to climb to, to understand that people were not constantly being rude. Exactly. Um, um, you know, so it is an objective fact of Chinese society that belching is actually a good thing to do, you know, appreciating. Yeah. Uh, but it's certainly not mind-independent. I mean, it's obviously it – obviously, it's not a real property of the world. That right, because these are all human constructions and human activities. Right. So they're not independent of us or our conceptions. Um, let me let me just go a little harder on this. So so let's take a standard empirical judgment. Sure. Um, you know. Sorry, before we do that, yeah, go ahead. Let me let me add one more yeah, thing. Yeah. So so I think that therefore object not only objective is not the same as real. But I think we, it might be helpful to actually contrast both of those to their, to their actual opposite. So objective mm-hmm. to subjective, right? Um, and real to constructed, right? So the, 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 the game of chess is not real, is a human construction. It's constructed. It's constructed, right? Uh, um, now, in terms of objective versus subjective, you know, a, a flavor, what is the best flavor of gelato, that's entirely subjective. There's no rule or, you know, even even arbitrary rule that says, you know, oh, yeah, you ought to get dark chocolate instead of vanilla, whatever. Right. It's, that's an entirely subjective thing. Okay, now back, back okay, to so, so so let's – I'm, the reason I'm doing this is because in the paper essay, I do offer actually a definition of what being objective is, and then mm-hmm. I'm trying to test out here. Um, and so um, let's take a standard empirical judgment. Um, you know, squirrels are warm-blooded, right? Um, sure. um, uh, synthetic a posteriori, right? It's not definitionally true. Right. You know this on the basis of observations. Um, um, is the is the fact that squirrels are warm-blooded an objective fact, and is it real? Is, is there and, and, and the reason why I'm asking is because it seems to me, post-Kant, you'd have to say they're objective but not real simply because the, 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 that judgment involves all sorts of distinctively human frames of reference and, and perceptual capacities 
um, you know, a creature that doesn't perceive temperature is not going to characterize um, um, uh, squirrels as being warm-blooded. It's going to characterize squirrels in some other sort of way, right? That 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 that, that reflect its perceptual and conceptual apparatus. Um, now, I think you probably don't agree with this, but so I'm wanting yeah. to know what the contrast is. Yeah, no, that's contrast. That's an interesting example. So, no, that you're right. I don't. My inclination is not to agree. To yeah, you tend so, to be more of a realist about empirical yeah. judgments, and so I want to know what the difference is, the relevant difference. That is a great, great question. So, so now we do agree that that's objective, however, right? Those Absolutely. statements are objective. Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. Meaning that anybody who knows what warm blooded means would ought to agree that yes, <laughs> uh, squirrels are all blooded animals, right? Okay. Great. I also think that's not just my point of view. That's a fact. Exactly. Them, it's a yeah, fact. Yes, right? yes. If you, if you yes. deny it, you just don't either. You don't, right. you don't know what there's a straightforward sense in which you're wrong if you deny it. Right. And Correct. it's demonstrable. Yeah. Correct. Now I do think that's also real, meaning that that property of that particular species of animals is mind independent. Now However, that's what I'm not getting post Kant. How, how do we get hold that? Hold hold but that said, the fact that you and I, as human beings, or or the fact that the biologists focus on that among the infinite number of, of ways to characterize squirrels, that, I think, is not real. That is the result of human uh, choices, of, uh, you know, the fact that, yeah, we tend to be interested in warm-blooded animals, or we tend to classify things as warm-blooded or non-blooded because, because we are warm-blooded, because we are made in a certain, in a certain way. But the fact, if, if you define warm-blooded as, you know, it has a certain kind of, of physiology as opposed to a, to a reptile who doesn't, well, that is a not only objective fact, but it's a fact of the world that is man-independent. Whether that's an interesting fact about the world or not, whether that's what something you focus on or not, that is definitely a human choice. And, that is not, and it's definitely not human, you know, not man-independent. So... Which characteristics of the empirical world you focus on, I think, are in fact, so in a, in a, in a, one another way to put it is, I don't think that the world can be cut, you know, that nature can be cut at its joints, because there are no joints. Any cutting up of nature that we do is our doing it. And in that sense, science is a human enterprise. It's not an objective description, description of the world, because or mind-independent description of the world because it can't be done in a mind Then how are fashion. the empirical judgments that come from it minding? That, that's what I'm not getting. What you just said sounds to me like an argument for them being objective but not real, right? Because they do, they do depend, the judgments do employ concepts that depend upon the human I, frame of reference, right? I think the problem here might be that you're calling them judgments and I'm not, right? So... When I say that um, that um, squirrels are warm-blooded animals, to me that doesn't sound like a judgment. That sounds like a statement of fact, right? A judgment is, and it is a good thing that they're warm-blooded, <laughs> or warm-blooded individual, you know, animals are better uh, or more evolved or whatever it is. Those are judgments, and those I would definitely say they are not only they are not real; they are probably not even objective. Um, but the, the straightforward, so, you know, take another example. So Saturn has rings. I mean, that's a mind, that sounds, strikes me as a mind independent fact, but it's not a judgment. 
Is it? So could it be, in other words, what I'm asking you is, could it be that you're you're expanding the definition of judgment too far? Maybe. I mean, I guess what I was thinking of is that I I could imagine creatures with sufficiently different perceptual apparatuses that their examination of the world, it wouldn't even be made sense to speak of things as having blood, right? Yeah, I agree. Um, 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 You know, a creature who simply perceives radio radioactive spectra right um right. and so even the concept of having blood strikes me as being as being non-mind independent right because it depends that that statement that proposition right depends upon one having the kind of a frame of reference that includes uh material objects right that includes concrete um, you know, that's, that's why people, that's why Kant thought that things like extension were forms of perception, right? Because we can imagine a creature that doesn't perceive that way. Yeah. And so it's not even gonna, it's not even gonna, when it observes the world, it's not even gonna characterize the world in those ways. Right. But let me give you then a, com- a counter example. Yeah. Um, maybe. <laughs> so human beings are not naturally cap- capable of, uh, perceiving radio waves. Right, uh, and yet in the 1930s, 40s, we invented radio telescopes, and now we can actually perceive radio waves by way of instrumentation. Right now, the radio waves were there before. It's not like we invented the radio waves; mm. we only invented a way to perceive them. Right, and so I want to say that the radio emissions from a galaxy or from the sun are mind-independent facts of the, of the world. They were there before we invented radio telescopes, but they had now become perceptible by human beings because we have made that kind of technological advancement. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. The worry that I have is, and we're not going to pursue this to the, to the ends of the earth um, because it's not really <laughs> a topic, but it's so fascinating. I feel like if you go that way, you get forced back into the old primary-secondary quality <laughs> distinction. Hmm. Um, that, 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 and, and then you wind up with the sort of the problems that people like Barkley wind up being the sort of the end, end game of, right? It's like, you know, or, or Kant, you know, Kant's whole point was that, look, it's arbitrary to divide up the characteristics which are in the world and the characteristics which are in the mind. Um, we should, what we really is the case is that mind is penetrated by world, but world is also penetrated by mind. Now, now, it sounds to me like the distinction you want to make is going to force us back into the pre-Kantian primary secondary quality distinction. And then somebody's going to ask you, isn't that just sort of arbitrary, right? Because you are going to agree that some of the characteristics of the world as experienced um, are mind dependent, right? You're going to accept that, right? Like, uh, like, like the traditional secondary qualities, right? Yellowness, right? Or is that getting us back to our last discussion in which that, sort of hypostatizes qualia in a way that we shouldn't do. Right? <laughs> okay, uh, so so that's actually a good example. I yeah. do have a, quest, a specific question to ask you in a minute, yeah. and I'll, 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 I'll remember it. But, but let's pursue this for a second. So um, let's consider color perception, right? Color is not out there in the world, despite the fact that there's still a surprising number of people who actually believe that that is the case. Yeah. What's out there in the world uh, modern science tells us is electromagnetic radiation, okay, of which can, comes in a variety of different frequencies. In fact, it's a continuum, it's a continuum spectrum to which, by the way, radio waves also belong, right? And now we happen to have evolved 
uh, obviously, uh, you know, that's an accident of, of evolution. It's not a, not a universal thing. We happen to have evolved in a way that we can perceive a certain bandwidth within the electromagnetic spectrum. Okay. And we perceive it in a way that is represented to our brains, to our consciousness as colors. Right. But colors are in fact a invention of the human mind, literally a biological invention of the human mind. And you can see that very easily because there are people, for instance, like me who are partially colorblind. Yeah. So I, I perceive colors differently from other people. There are people who don't perceive colors at all. And, um, and there are other animals that don't perceive colors or perceive co- different uh, spectrum of colors, like some birds uh, can see in the UV, for instance, and we cannot, right? So colors are definitely an example of a mind-constructed, not, not in an arbitrary kind of way, but in a biologically constructive feature of the world. But they are representations of something real out there. It is colors are the way in which our brains represent to us the existence of electromagnetic radiation. <sighs> the electromagnetic radiation is there, however. So are you, so that sounds like we're saying quality are mental objects. Yeah. Which, as you know, is just trouble, right? I mean, that's just, well, well, they're mental objects, but they're not arbitrary mental objects, right? They are mental objects that are, con- that are constructed in a certain way because evolution equipped us with a particular way of, of, of perceiving the world. Again, if we were a different kind of animal, we would have different qualia. And why couldn't I tell the same story you just told about, um, about extension? That is, you know, um, um, so, so I'm, you know, we imagine the creature that simply perceives, you know, radio, a radioactive spectra. Right. Um, um, thus, its universe, its phenomenal experience includes no extended objects. Sure. So, so why is extension a real property of things but not color? In other words, why couldn't I tell the same qual- – that's the sense the Kantian point, right? Um, well, I mean, we need to be a little bit more careful about what, what do you mean by extension exactly? That, 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 that there are discrete objects – in space that have multiple dimensions, right? I take well, it that you take that that's real as a well, yellowness, which is mind dependent. But why, why couldn't I make the Kantian argument that that's just as mind dependent by, by postulating the, the, the being that doesn't perceive uh, that. Um, okay. Why, so, do you get, why does your picture get reality right and its picture doesn't, right? Well, because then what you're doing there is to push push reality back one more level. In fact, this, that, this actually gets me to the next question. So even the, the, the creature you're imagining, it's still perceiving things in a non-arbitrary way because of, as a result of the way in which evolution equipped that particular uh, creature to perceive the environment, Right. But if we, but we still agree that there is an environment to be perceived, presumably, right? Unless yeah. you're an idealist, then there yeah. is yeah. there is an environment to be perceived, right? Yeah. Now you just said, well, but there are the, the, the you know the distinct objects. Not really. I mean, fundamental physics actually tells you that everything is a process, and it's all you know. One one interpretation mm. of fundamental physics is that everything is a manifestation of a single um, you know uh, quantum function. So when so, you said you're a realist about empirical judgment, you weren't necessarily saying that you're a realist about things like... Yeah, no. Okay, okay. No, no. Okay. And though, so that was my question, however, to you. And so maybe this is a good, a good time to jump into that one. So it's like, 
So when you say that things like the Sat- the rings of Saturn are not real or the, the warm bloodiness of, of – That they're uh, objective but not real in the same right. way that – So is there anything you say is real? Yeah, that's what I, 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 I've been tempted and I've written this as much. I've been very tempted by metaphysical anti-realism, right. which I think is consistent with thinking being objective about, and, and that's in a sense sort of Kant without the noumena, right? And to a certain degree, right? right? I mean, um, but I think actually Kant in there was closer to the, in my mind, at least Kant, Kant was closer there, meaning that it, just that consider the examples that we just talked about, right? So when you push me, about, you know, well, but the different creature perceives things differently. We have agreed that, yes, it does, but not in an arbitrary way, because presumably evolution equipped that that creature with uh, uh, sensorial perceptions and, and, and sensorial apparatus that uh, takes in aspects of the environment that are pertinent to that creature's survival and reproduction, right? That's what that natural selection is, is, is does. Well, but that implies that there is such a thing as features of the environment yeah. uh, that are pertinent, yeah. you know, to, and so yeah. I would call those features real. Yeah. So what's going to happen is that there's going to be no way to substantively characterize the real, right? So what's going to happen, you're, you have to say, in this sense, Kant was kind of right. You're, going to, you're only going to be able to talk about the real transcendentally, right? Because yeah. any specific talk about it is going to be through a conceptual framework that is going to be yeah. perceiver dependent right um yeah. and so it, even then in, in that sense the phenomenon noumena distinction is kind of right right the only thing that's yeah. sort of wrong was sort of the way that the noumena was conceived if you conceive the noumena more in the sort of the, sort of what fund whatever fundamental physics tells us the world is ultimately like then you get yeah. a kind of a picture where there's a way the world is and all the ways in which it can be represented are notice consistent with one another. They don't contradict one another, right? Yeah. Um, the way right. that the radioactive spectra perceiver sees things and the way that we do don't contradict one another. They're just Correct. different. They're all equally represent uh, accurate representations of the thing that is real or inaccurate because you know natural inaccurate, can be right. only partially. As I said, I'm right. partially colorblind. That's right. an inaccurate but our characterization of the real itself. Yep. Can only be done transcendentally. It can't be done. I mean, yes. that's what it sounds to me like we're going to have to say, right? So, yeah, the only the only problem with the – yes, I think actually I agree. The only quibble that I have is the word transcendental, of course. Not transcendental meaning transcendental, but transcendentally meaning necessary for the possibility of – in other words, you're talking yeah. about – that's what I mean by transcendental. I mean in ter- yeah. like in terms of a transcendental argument. Yeah, I don't that's mean right. transcendent. Yeah. Um, right. Um, right. Um, so, so, again, another way to put it is – Look, there is a world out there. I think the world is real and it has certain characteristics, but we do not have any direct access to those characteristics. And so the way we perceive the world is always mediated by the, the historically accidental, uh, apparatus that we have. That apparatus includes not only our senses, but even our ability to reason. Right. Because there is, right. Um, so, and, those things, it's like we are in a situation, in a sense, similar to the famous uh, metaphor of all those people in the in the in the dark room that are that are touching different parts of the elephant. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So the, the elephant is there, but but yeah. depending on your ability, to, you know, to 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 touch versus smell versus seeing and so on and so forth, you're going to perceive very different aspects of of reality and a very partial uh, uh, 
aspect yeah. of reality. Yeah, because and the reason I said that, that the any characterization of the any direct characterization of the real is going to have to be transcendental, it's probably because you couldn't say that a substantive ca- characterization of the real is the conjunction of all possible representations of it, right? No. Because there's going to be misrepresentations. Correct. Um, uh, otherwise, it would be impossible for anybody to make a mistake, right? So you'd have yeah. to, you're going to have to say any potential represent- possible representation, and possible is going to be cast out in terms of sort of organically, naturally possible, right? Um, yeah. Any possible representation of it um, is going to be consistent with any other, right? Um, yeah. But, but, the sum of those is not going to be a characterization of the real, right? The yeah. real is simply the thing that they are all representations of. <laughs> Correct. All partial and possibly distorted representations. Yeah, of. yeah, that's the tricky part of it. Okay, that's that's just really interesting. I I I love that little tangent. Um um, all right. So let's get back onto the subject in the last part, and that is um my provocation. So one of the things that I was I was just thinking more and more. And this actually came to me from aesthetics. I didn't even realize. I was having all these arguments in ethics, and I realized at a certain point that I'd already sort of gone through this process of thinking over in aesthetics and that I thought that the the lesson could be brought over, right? And what I've kind of proposed is that um, – and now we're talking about the objective, not the real – that yeah. whether or not values are objective actually makes no difference, right? Um, um, hmm. Um, has no has no efficacy, um, and that that does rest upon some prior assumptions that you might disagree with. One of them being that the purpose of ethical inquiry and discourse is entirely motivational; it's not epistemic. The point isn't to come to know something, right? Mm. It's to come to get people to to act in various ways and not act in other ways, right? Mm. And if if one agrees with that that that's the aim. Um, and I actually, I actually put it pretty strongly. I'm just pulling it up here. I said, um, 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 hold on one second. Da, 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 da. Um, value judgments are essentially motivation and motivational in both their meaning and their force. Right. Um, so what they're about as well as the effect that they have, the, the locutionary effect that they have, are, are in both cases motivational. I, and I said their purpose is to point our actions and affections in various directions. Empirical judgments and the sorts of a priori statements one finds in logic and mathematics in contrast are essentially descriptive and epistemic. The purpose of making them is so that we might come to know something. Whatever motivational role they play is secondary and always mediated by a value, right? Mm. So so what, what I'm essentially saying is that given the the, the meaning and purpose of value inquiry and discourse, it makes no difference whether values are objective or not. Right. Um, Hmm. That's the sort of the structure of the argument. And then I sort of give some examples, but I don't know if I need to go through the examples in order for you to react to, and the examples come from aesthetics, right? So let's say we say that that the producers, Mel Brooks, the producers is objectively funny in the sense that, there's enormous agreement as to its humorness and people who find it unfunny are, are sort of outliers. Right. Um, right. it's of course, funniness is not real. Right. But, but right. it might be objective in the sense that we, that we, that <clears throat> we've been talking about. Right. Um, now suppose somebody nonetheless doesn't find it funny. Right. Yeah. Um, um, Whatever then happens afterwards, nothing depends on whether funniness is an objective property, right? Um, a, if it's if it is an objective property, that's not going to change the fact that he doesn't find it funny, 
And B, yeah. if we decide that we need to do something to him, sanction him in some way for not finding it funny, it's not going to matter to that whether the funniness is objective or not. It's just going to matter that we think it matters enough to ostracize someone who doesn't accept it. Now, what I'm arguing is I think you can directly import that, that case over to, an eth- to, a, to a value case. To an ethical case, right? Well, so let's talk oh, about. Go ahead. I, that was too much talking. But no, no, that's uh, that. that was, that's out. very interesting. Yeah. yeah, that's very interesting. So, yeah. and I'm not sure what I think about it. So I'm literally just, you know, yeah. thinking this thing through. I mean, I read your your essay. Yeah. But, um, so let's pick a different example from aesthetics first. Then, mm-hmm. then we'll talk about ethics because my in, in, my intuition is to push back against your content. I understand you to say that. Uh, value judgments are not, are not about, are not epistemic, about epistemic stuff. They're about, um, aiming our affections and right. actions. Changing behavior, right. Changing yeah. action, right? Yeah. So I would push back. I would say, no, actually they're a combination of both. Um, and, and for instance, uh, going back to my favorite philosophy, you know, Epictetus tells you that, um, if you understand what's, what the right thing to do is, if you have knowledge, of the right thing to do, then you are more likely to do it. Then, then, then you are, then you're going to do it. So, so he's actually making a direct connection between epistemic statements, you know, knowledge of some, something and, and action. And in fact, he, in fact, this, the whole stoic conceit of, of people never make a mistake on purpose. You know, there are no evil people according to the stoics. Um, we have disagreed on this in the past, but let me let it pass for a minute. Nobody does does anything on per, bad on purpose. They do it out of ignorance. That's Plato. Right? That's where they. That's where they that's agree. Basic, with that's Plato. Yeah, right? they that's, agree with. That's, yeah, that's Plato. Yeah, yeah. Right, and so that implies that there is such a thing as knowledge, right? So th- these people are doing something wrong because they are under the mistaken impression that you know killing somebody or or robbing somebody is actually good for them. They don't understand. They don't, they don't, they don't have the knowledge that in fact it's bad for them, not just for the other person, but for them. Why is it bad for them? Because it undermines their character. So, so, uh, certainly the eudaimonic schools do make a claim of knowledge there. Now, before we go back there, let's go to the, to the aesthetics. Instead of Mel Brooks, as much as I love Mel Brooks, let's take something else. Um, there was a time in my life where I did not appreciate either literature that much as opposed to science. Right? You know, don't give, I'm, I'm talking about when I was very young. Um, don't give me a novel to read, you know, literature. That, don't bother me. I want science. I want to read a biology book or something like that. And I did not appreciate much in the way of art. So I would look at, I'd go to a museum. And I would really? Say, yeah. yeah. I don't, it's a, only, only because of growing up in Italy, I find that almost impossible to conceive, but. Unfortunately, my, my, uh, caretakers were not that much into either literature or art. You're so, surrounded you know, by it all the time, right? I mean. You are, but I went to the, to the Colosseum the first time on my own when I was already an adult. So. Really? Yes. Fascinating. So, fascinating. Go so, on. No, so I'm, now seeing question, a bio, I'm seeing an autobiography, Massimo. That's really. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so. Now, what happened there? It's not that the first time that I went to then to a museum and I started looking at things. Oh boy, these are these are. You know, I should be feeling that these are good or you know interesting or not interesting, well done or not well done, because I didn't know enough. I had to actually. It was only after I actually started learning about both literature and uh, art, and in fact, the same goes for music. Initially, I didn't go to classical music. You know, I was just listening to pop music. Um, and initially classical music was difficult for me to like to enjoy. 
It's like, ah, what is this thing? It's not as, as bum, bum, bum. And I, you know, I can't, can't dance to it. And I can't do, not that I dance, but you know, I can't do much with it. So like, what the hell? And, but, but now, you know, decades later, I have a completely different understanding and appreciation of music, art, and literature. And I believe that that is because of increased knowledge. Now, of course, that knowledge is not mind independent. It's not about real objects or anything like that. Um, but there are some objective things that I learned, right, about, about different literary, literary genres, for instance, or different kinds of music or different kinds of periods of painting. I still have my own judgments, for instance. I'm sorry, I have to admit that much of contemporary art for me leaves me completely cold. And abstract, abstract. Yeah, mostly abstract and, and especially or, or, or even uh, what they call it, performative art. Um, but that, that's not for lack of trying. It's, you know, I actually went to several contemporary art museums. I read about it. So I understand the theory. I understand why I'm supposed to. And this, this helps your argument. I'm, I understand why I'm supposed to appreciate it. I just don't. Right. So there, the knowledge has not helped. It has. I have the knowledge but it hasn't clicked with me. However, in the case of Beethoven uh, or the Surrealists or Caravaggio or Shakespeare, their knowledge has helped immensely. It is because of knowledge that I started appreciating. I find the cases interesting just in their own case. And so let me just ask you on, quickly on this um, to, 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 to make a difference between the two, because I suspect you wouldn't say this about, so, one of the things that often happens to people is that their um, their taste, and I mean that now literally in the sense of food, yeah. uh, changes over time. So, um, sure. um, you know, I did not like ripened cheeses as a young as a young child as a as a child and even an adolescent. Right. Now it's one of my favorite things. You wouldn't, I I would not characterize that as having anything to do with something I came to know. No. Now. What would do you have a principled way of distinguishing between the cases in which knowledge did affect your the evolution of your taste and yeah. where it does not play a role? I think I can. I think I can come up with one. Let's see. Let's see if how how airtight it is. Um, first of all, I actually think that even some tastes are acquired through knowledge. For instance, wine. Right. So when when I was growing up, I did drink wine in my there was wine in my house, but it was no particular culture of wine. So it was mostly table wine, and I had no ability to discern anything from anything else, really. Um, but then I started getting interested in, in later on in my life, and and now I do have an appreciation for you know broader variety of wines, and there are certain that I don't like or I like. Now, of course. That change, you're absolutely right. My my um, biological ability to taste things also has changed, right? I mean, and, and it does change not only with age, but actually even with with uh, accident or external circumstances. Like I remember my my father before he died. Uh, one of the the, the the thing that made him sad is he was always an Epicurean in the, with the little e um, in the in the word. So he would he would appreciate good food and good good taste. But unfortunately, he died of cancer. And some of the chemotherapy basically destroyed his, um, his ability, ability to, to enjoy and appreciate. Right. Which is and a so, tremendous loss probably for him, right? Right. And so, uh, there, yeah, absolutely. It was a tremendous loss. But now their, their knowledge isn't going to help you because you literally lost the physiological barrier. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, however, then in my case, with presumably normal so far ability to taste things, knowledge actually has, in fact, both increased my range 
and change my taste. Now, in the case of, uh, let's say, music, something similar happens, right? I mean, your ability to, to enjoy music in part certainly depends on your auditory abilities. There's no question about it, right? Um, your ability to enjoy um, painting certainly depends in part on your visual acuity. Now, your ability to enjoy literature, much less so. So what, I, so what I'm suggesting here, I guess, yes, here's where I'm going, is that there is a range here. At one extreme of the range, uh, what you like or don't like is mostly or exclusively a matter of your physiological constitution. And therefore, knowledge has got nothing to do with it. It's got, you know, it has to do with your biology. But at the opposite extreme of that range, where things become more and more intellectual in a sense, you know, involve more and more of an intellectual component, such as literature, uh, then that, at that lane, at that range, I think, in that, at that end of the range, I think knowledge does make a difference in terms of, you know, my, my willingness to appreciate certain things or not, my, my ability to appreciate certain things. Now, one more step. Bring that to value judgments in ethics. Mm-hmm. Right? So I think there is a similar range there. The Stoics would argue that at the, at the, at the first extreme of the range, the, the entirely biological instinctual thing. There is, there is our instinct as, as pro-social animals. Right? So there are certain things that we are more willing to do or less willing to do just because, you know, they kind of feel good. Right. Um, we, there's no, there's no argument that needs to be made. There is no conviction that needs to be established or anything like that. But the more compli- complex things, the more complex aspects of ethics and of, you know, inter- intercourse with other people, those do have a, um, a component of an intellectual component, a component of understanding. And if you count understanding as knowledge, then I would say, uh, yeah, 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 let me give you my own example. So I, uh, you know, I grew up as an omnivore with eating a significant amount of, of meat and then over time I become closer and closer to a vegetarian. I'm not entirely vegetarian. But you're sort of, a, you're sort of a ethically sourced pescatarian for the most part, aren't Correct. you? Yeah, Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And well, the reason for that had absolutely nothing to do with the fact that I enjoyed this diet better. I no, it had to be, yeah, you've talked about this, that this came from actively engaging first with the arguments yeah. and then exposing yourself to sort of the, the visual uh, right. media representations of right. both those of arguments. Which, yeah. Both yeah. of which yeah. I think count as knowledge. Yeah. So here's yeah. an example where I have actually changed my value judgments um, as a result of knowledge. How does that strike you? Yeah, but you know that's an interesting that's an interesting point because I mean it sort of it personalizes this in a way that maybe we can just talk about it in terms of ourselves, right? So, yeah. um, I've done all the same things you have, and I remain unmoved. Um, um, and so the point here's the point: um, if sufficiently many of you, uh, if there were sufficiently many of you, and you deemed it sufficiently important, right? you might decide that people like me need to be shunned, ostracized, removed, et cetera, right? right? But would it make any difference to that decision whether or not the relevant value was objective? No, what would would matter to that decision was whether you cared about it enough to be willing to go to those lengths, right? So I guess, I mean, I wasn't just saying that, I I wasn't just saying that they're not objective. What I'm saying is that, or that they don't produce knowledge at all. What I was saying was that the knowledge they produce only has any efficacy 
if that knowledge matters in a certain way, and that's subjective, right? Um, that, that doesn't depend upon whether it's objective or not. And, um, and also that, um, um, whether or not it's objective is not going to change the fact that some people might nonetheless not be moved by it. Right. In which case, um, then it simply becomes a matter of, okay, I guess what I'm saying is that in ethics, there is a, there is entirely a practical imperative such that objectivity and realism really don't matter. Whereas in the case of epistemic um, knowledge, uh, you know, science, let's say, there is also a purely epistemic purpose that has no practical end, right? There is just knowledge for its own sake, right? We don't only pursue knowledge to engage in engineering, right? Sure. But we do only pursue ethical knowledge to engage in um, directing affection and action. Yeah. But let's unpack these things because I think there is a, two or three things going on simultaneously. So yeah. for one thing, when you say, you know, um, knowledge of uh, the, let's say, the health effects and environmental effects of meat production and consumption doesn't move you. Fine. I never, I never claimed that reasons, even when they're good reasons, they're going to move everyone, right? I mean, that's, that's obviously not the well, case. It's that they don't move me. It's that there are, there are contrary um, considerations that also move me such that I land emotionally on a different side of it than you do, right? But if that is the case, then I think you actually agree with me. All you're saying is that your own judgment of those, of that knowledge is different and fine. You know, that's, we're going to, we're going to have to agree to disagree, but let's, let's just for a minute, make a, do a, a thought experiment and imagine that we are now, you know, 20 or 30 years into the future. And it is an established fact of science that a major component of climate change is the result of, uh, you know, uh, industrialized uh, meat production. Let's just just or pandemics or whatever or pandemics. catastrophic That's catastrophic right. results. Right. Well, there's so been a words, lot about that now lately. Right. So about, in other words, let's yeah. let's um, yeah. let's uh, suggest for a minute a situation in, w- in which the uh, our epistemic access to the relevant facts is such that it becomes impossible for you or much more difficult for you to actually say, no, actually, I'm moved by these other facts. In other words, that you, over time, you change your mind. You know, you say, okay, I got new knowledge and new understanding, and I changed my mind. Well, I suspect that there's a lot going on there in terms of, of how ethical judgments can be changed. That's certainly not the only way to change ethical judgments. Uh, obviously, you can change them for emotional, entirely emotional reasons, right? Lots of people do that. They respond emotionally to things. Uh, you can also force them on, on other people, as you were saying. Right? If there's a majority of us that decides, you know, no more meat production, then you're screwed, my friend. And we've but done that a, with other things. I mean, correct. You know, yeah. But that's yeah. a political. The reason I want to uh, separate that is because that's a political. That's the way things work as, at a political level in society, right? So in, when you have enough people that are convinced of a particular situation, a particular notion, no matter how they got convinced, emotionally, rationally, irrationally, whatever it is. They are going to be in a position to impose it on others. Fine. Um, that's all right. That's, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. But I thought what we were discussing is whether knowledge, where epistemic considerations are relevant. I wouldn't say they're the only way, but certainly relevant to changing one's, uh, ethical judgments. And I think that they are. I mean, I gave you my own examples just because my own example is not universal or it doesn't translate with your uh, experience that doesn't negate the point. They clearly can, right? Yeah, now, I, don't think, I don't know. If, I don't think my my point was that 
knowledge is not relevant. Okay. I guess my point was that because in the case of values, knowledge is not an end in itself, it ultimately winds up being the case that it doesn't matter whether the values are objective or not, given the reason why we engage in the inquiry and the discourse. Well, I don't see the jump. I think you made a jump there that I would like to be more clear. So you are acknowledging that you're agreeing with the statement that knowledge of matters that are pertinent to ethical judgments can affect ethical judgments, right? Yes, of course. Okay. So, so what is it that doesn't, why is it that then, that, then objective because, facts because don't ultimately, matter? What, what, ultimately, what, what, whatever plays out in an ethical, in an ethical narrative, right? Um, um, whatever plays out in terms of our story about how this goes, right? Our, our, our views and feelings about animal husbandry and, yeah. and all of that. Um, that ultimately everything that happens is a function of the things that matter to us. And okay. that doesn't depend upon, in other words, values could be entirely subjective and the story would be exactly the same, I guess is what I'm saying. Right. Right. Because, because the aim of the discourse is entirely motive and, and inquiry is entirely motivational. Whereas, whereas the aim of the discourse and inquiry in science is not entirely for the purposes of engineering. It's also simply for the purpose of knowledge for its own sake. So then it does really kind of matter whether there are actually facts, right? But in the case of ethics, I don't see how the story about all, what happens with regard to animal husbandry um, changes if it turns out that values are all subjective, right? I mean, it still would exactly the same play of things would happen, right? Well, you at this point, still, I need, you would I need still, to know, when I need to know more about the subjectivity of values or alleged subjectivity of values, because then, then we're going back to go back to the beginning of our discussion. I don't think human values are necessarily subjective. There are right. multiple ones, right? right? Right. They are underdetermined by our biology and all that sort of stuff, but I don't think they're subjective. Right. I, uh, I guess what I'm saying is that it doesn't matter whether they are or not because the ethical story would play out the same way, right? In other words, whether or not values are, whether or not values are objective doesn't change the fact that if something matters to you enough, you're going to band together with other people to stop me from doing something, right? And the fact that values are objective is not going to change the fact of whether I'm moved by it or not, which is going to determine ultimately what I do, right? And so I guess what I'm saying is I don't see the relevance of the question of the metaphysical status of values given what we engage in ethical inquiry and discourse for, is I guess what well, I'm saying. Um, well, but I'm going to... I'm going to try to change societal behavior or your behavior or you know, trying to pass law and only if I think I am correct. My judgment is correct. Do you only try to advance causes about which you think there is an objective fact of the matter as to their correctness or incorrect? Yes, because if, there, if not, then I don't have any interest in advancing those causes. Interesting. So, so what? Okay. Right, so I'll have to digest that. That's that's something. Okay, well, then that this may be just me, but but I think no, no, it so, probably isn't. Maybe I'm starting to wonder whether I'm a bit odd um, <laughs> because you're not the first person that said that to me. Okay, um, all right. Um, um, the so take take a classic the, the, take a classic debate about uh, ethics. You know, abortion. Mm -hmm. The debate on abortion. Um, 
both sides, I think, you know, I, I talk to people on both sides. I'm, I'm on one side, obviously, but I've talked to plenty of people on the other side and they think that they are factually right, right. about certain things. Yes. Right. And that's why they, they're so, uh, you know, adamant and, you know, this, no, this is murder because I define a person as blah, blah, blah. And I get this definition from these other places, et cetera, et cetera. So there are disagreements of fact, fact here and understanding and interpretation of those facts. And, um, I think that matters precisely because I think I'm right on those interpretations or closer to be right. And those people are wrong. If I actually thought, look, it, there's no fact of the matter here. It could be one way or the other. Then I would say, all right, you think that way. I think this way. And that's the end of that. That would become closer to you prefer, you know, uh, I prefer dark chocolate. You prefer mixed chocolate. I think you're wrong. But I understand why you would prefer milk chocolate, but whatever. It's your, it's your thing. Um, that would really be a situation in which I wouldn't argue on the basis of facts. And I don't care about arguing. I mean, why? Why would I want to convince somebody that they should eat dark chocolate? Yeah, yeah who cares? Yeah, yeah. Right? I guess I. You know, that's interesting. I have to think about this. I mean, I guess it's now getting much simpler to me what what I think and and what the difference is and 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 I guess what I was sort of the core of all this is that it seems to me that if on on the one hand a you think something is objectively wrong. X is objectively wrong. B, you simply hate X. Yeah. Would lead pretty much the same behaviors, it seems to me. Yes. That is, I guess, that I is guess that's what I'm saying, which that then would true. seem to suggest that the metaphysical status of X is irrelevant, right? It's how much X matters to you that's relevant. Okay. I guess that's that, what I've been trying to say in a very right. convoluted fashion. No, no, no. That's, that's, clear. that's much more clear to me now. Uh, but I still wouldn't say that it doesn't matter. I would say that what you've identified there are two different levels of why it matters. I mean, after all, I can push a little bit further and say, well, why does that person hate that particular thing? Presumably he has reasons, right? You don't just hate things. Right, right, um, right, right. So right. so those reasons are going to turn out, if you push far enough, those mm. reasons I think are going to mm. turn out to be epistemic, at mm. least in part. Mm. Um, you know, why is it that um, a fundamentalist Christian hate the notion of abortion? Well, because he's understanding of what the Bible says. And the sacralization of life and various other right. things. And, all and, that sort of stuff and, and, goes in a certain direction. But if you were You're to saying actually, it's basically bundles of facts and values all the way down. Right. Correct. And what, what in a sense, if I'm making a mistake... I'm making too hard of a fact-value distinction. Probably. That's and right. And saying that exactly. it simply doesn't... What I'm saying is making a hard fact-value distinction and saying it doesn't matter from the side of values. Yeah. Um, of the ontological status of the facts. Right. But here's... I think you're absolutely right. This is That is what I, what I think. But here's the thing. Um, I think that values... Let me put it this way. Human values are never separate from facts. That is, we don't have values in a, in a, in a vacuum. Those values come from our understanding of how the world works. Okay. Now, of course, the world doesn't come with labels and value, that, that touch value, right? That's one of the stoic points when Peter says, look, 
if something bad happened to you, you have to remember that what the proper way to look at it is something happened, period, and then you think that it's bad. Then your judgment may be correct or incorrect, right? So it is, it is I think it is the fact, I think the stories were right that facts, factual stuff doesn't come with value judgments attached uh, from the outside in a mind independent way. But they do there's no us. way for us. Yeah. yeah, but no, there's no way for yeah. us to disentangle the two. Yeah, you know, it's, I, it's, I hate to, I'm starting to sound like a person, you know, who's a hammer for which everything is a nail, but I'm starting to see, I'm starting to see sellers again. Right. I mean, it's just sort yes. of like yes. the mistake that I'm making is actually, if I'm making a mistake would be that I'm crossing from one image to the other. Right. I mean, in, in, in the sense I'm, I'm putting the facts over on the scientific image and, but actually the yeah. fa- both the facts and the values are in the manifest image and there, yeah. they're not, they're not, uh, they're not unentangling, unentanglable. They can't, be just, they can't be untangled. Right. Um, Correct. Correct. Um, um, and you don't think that that requires a pre-modern metaphysics. See, that's always been my stumbling block, is that I no, think that, that requires a pre-modern so. metaphysics. I mean, it comes from a pre-modern metaphysics, for sure. As I said, we, we, we find this kind of stuff all the way back to the Greeks, so it definitely comes from a pre-modern metaphysics. But I think it can be updated true a modern metaphysics. First of all, as you know, I'm fairly minimalist about modern metaphysics. I don't, you know, I, I, I think that... Yeah, you said, I, my impression is that you kind of accept what I've been calling kind of metaphysical pluralism, but that you're very quietist about in, meta, in terms of metaphysics overall. Yeah. To me. Yeah. 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 So it's, in other words, the metaphysics, you know, for me, the metaphysics is a way, is a framework. It's a way to see things. But I don't think that it's a fact of the matter, yeah, or at no, least a fact of the matter that is that can be established by us yeah. about yeah. whether one metaphysical framework is actually more or less correct than than another. But I think those. So that's why I, I push that into the background. But I do think that every time we come up with a value judgment, in fact, even non-objective value judgments are entangled with fact. Like, let me go back to my example of taste, right? And say milk chocolate versus versus. Uh, actually, let me modify that example slightly. Let's talk about just milk chocolate. Forget dark for a minute. I'm European, as you know, and the first time that I tasted Hershey chocolate, I thought, "What the hell is this thing?" This thing. And I know of Americans, the first time that they tasted some European chocolate from Belgium or France, for instance, they say, "What the hell is this thing?" And the reason for that is because Hershey chocolate actually has an on purpose, it has a kind of a sour taste to it. And apparently there is a, there is a story for that. As during World War II, there was no milk, fresh milk to be found. And so they actually used sour milk. Now, a whole generation. Fascinating. Yeah. A whole it's generation. still made that way. And it's, well, because a whole generation came up with, the, appreciated that taste. There's now and expectation. Now, yeah, yeah. now that's an expectation. Yeah. So you don't want to change it because that's, you know, that's dangerous from a marketing perspective. So it may seem entirely arbitrary, in other words, that's what I'm saying, that I value Belgian chocolate over Hershey chocolate, but it isn't. It's the result of the biology of human tastes as well as of an accident of history, of human history over the last century, right? So it's not really arbitrary. Um, now, I'm, I'm, in fact, uh, I may, of course, 
still, you know, I lived in the United States for more than three decades, so I can actually now tolerate Hershey chocolate if I really have to. <laughs> to and so I got used to it, right? So that's another situation where you ch- you change your habit because you're exposed to certain uh, certain uh, changing situations. But even that kind of very trivial, very obviously subjective judgment actually does have reasons. I just gave you a reason why I yeah. prefer, yeah. you know, one kind of chocolate over, over, over another. I'm not sure that that applies to everything that has to do with taste. But when you rem- when we remember that taste is, re- is a function of physiology, obviously, and it's also a function of cultural expectations, right? Uh, so your taste in opera, for instance, or whether you like opera at all, is certainly in part a result of your auditory you know, reactions to opera, but it's also a result of your knowledge, cultural history, and certain expectations, cultural expectations. So it all comes out, even though none of these are real in any, in any strong sense of the word, uh, your taste, your value, your, the, the way you value or not value uh, those things is actually not, in fact, arbitrary. You can provide reasons for it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and the reasons are are a combination. Yeah, always going to be a combination. In other words, you're not going to be able to disentangle the fact part of the reason from the no. sentiment part of the reason. Um, yeah. And um, um, so, and even so, what I was going to throw at you a little bit earlier before this point about disentanglement came up, which I'm, I find very persuasive. And I'm, but I'm going to still have to think through what I think the implications of are. Um, um, what I was going to throw at you was just the point that, you know, do you disagree with Hume that knowledge is not inherently motivational? And um, the answer has got to be that it's not that you disagree with Hume, but that Hume it make, it makes the distinction too hard, that, the, that, Correct. The, that they're all mixed up in the manifest image. They're all mixed up, right? Correct. The reasons for... This, you know, the reasons that we give for the various judgments are a mixture of that's right uh, of, of facts and right. what we would call sent what what Hume would call sentiments. They're not they're not separable, right? That's right. Um, um, and I think that actually goes well with the the picture that emerges from modern neuroscience about the interrelation between mm. emotions and and reason, right? I yeah. mean, we. Yeah. Often we do, we do tend to think still in a, a little bit too, too much of a platonic view, like to the mind, the human mind divided into these compartments. You know, the reason is one thing over here, the emotions. Are, but it doesn't actually work that way, right? Even though there are anatomically somewhat distinct parts of the human brain, uh, like the amygdalas tend to be more involved in the emotional responses, the frontal parietal lobes tend to be more involved in sort of rational responses. But then you look at the anatomy of the brain and you see that these two areas are massively interconnected by literally hundreds of millions of uh, neurons, right? It's not and like one part when, lights up when you're doing logic and the other right. part lights up when you're, when you're enjoying a meal, right? It's not right. like that. Exactly. Yeah. No, it isn't. Yeah. Right. So even though logically you can separate them, Right? You can say, okay, that this anatomical portion of your brain is in charge, appears to be in charge mostly of, you know, rational decision making. Yes, logically you can separate that, but factually you cannot. In fact, anatomically you cannot. And I think that's what I'm suggesting here, that you, you could, in principle, like Hume does, separate reasons. You can make from, conceptual distinctions, but they're not, they're not distinctions that play out separately. I mean, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Exactly. All right. Well, uh, this I'm going to have to think on, um, um, but I, it was very illuminating. I really enjoyed the the various turns it took, and um, um, 
on the thing, the last thing I'll say, just by way of shameless, um, uh, shameless, um, uh, gushing, parental <laughs> gush, parental gushing, re-opera. So my daughter is a, vo- is a vocal performance person. Yeah, right, right. And she has been applying to vocal performance programs in the classical side, not the musical theater side, um, which means operas and core and, and choral music. Um, right. and, she, so she just got all of her replies and she will be starting at the University of Indiana, Jacob School of Music, uh, uh, in the fall. And, um, nice. I know that you already had a daughter, do- your daughter is already, you have an adult daughter. I'm assuming that my current giddiness is going to continue, right? As she goes to yeah. college. Yeah, I will. Yeah, was that, was right. that, was that exciting for you when she got in? Oh, absolutely. She, oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. It's exciting and it's exciting now. She's, she, she's applying for graduate school and, you know, we're, we're, not in philosophy, right? Not, not in philosophy. Uh, although she's applying in journalism, which is not exactly <laughs> a kind of, of a profession. It's as far, you know, that, that much more common or, or yeah, but it's well regarded. a place where we desperately need good people. So, Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's a, Absolutely. that's good for her. Well, my, yes, congratulations. And it, it will last. Yes. Will thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of giddy with happiness over it. Yep. Um, um, even while things are horrible. Um, Massimo, thank you so much. Please continue to stay healthy um, and well. You too, my friend. And um, uh, I will ask you to email me not just links for the dialogue, but also links to the the live and online stuff that you've added that you weren't doing before that you're doing now so people can join in, okay? Sounds good. Sounds Thank great. you, Massimo. It was a pleasure. Take care.